Our message this morning is going to be called Heart Healthy, Avoiding Deadly Pollution. And uh, I hope I hope that what you come away with is something that will dwell in your heart for a while and you think about your actions and you think about what happens. What you see on the screen here is a street in Beth Shan. Uh, it's Beth or Beth, it means house of. And Shan is ivory. This is the place where they killed Saul uh, that the Bible records. In the Bible, this is Scythopolis. There were ten cities called the Decapolis in an area, and Jesus traveled among them sometimes. The Scythopolis was this area. Uh, there's a famous album cover some people in here might remember that has that tree in the top left-hand corner on it. But anyway, that's another story. In the Bible, the word for heart, a biblical heart, is uh, lead. And there's three forms of this word, but it doesn't matter which form you're looking at. Heart always, first and foremost, can mean the organ that's in your chest. But if you read what's there, it says it also refers to feelings, the will, and even the intellect, or the center of anything. That's not any different than in English. You said the heart of a matter, that's the central issue. The heart of the city might be uh, the downtown region. We use it the same way. Well, in Hebrew and Greek, that's the exact same thing. And something that will help you remember that when you're reading is that when you translate this Greek or the Hebrew into the Greek word, it becomes cardia. It's where we get the word cardiac. So when somebody says that they're a cardiac surgeon, it's true they're talking about the organ, but the way they derive that word is I'm working on the very center of a human being, the central area of him. That's where we get that. The reason I put this street for Beth Shen, the picture up there, I took that in 1998, is you see how that looks like just a main drag? You know, you got columns on the right, columns on the left, and there's a main strip there. You know what I mean? They called these streets in ancient Greek cities, not just Greek, but any city that had a Greek influence, and the whole world did at Jesus' time, a cardo. They called it the heart of the city. They actually referred to it as a cardo or dependent on the tense that you're speaking of, cardia. Well, when we talk today about a heart, you think about the very center of you. And I want to show you the first couple times that this appears in the Bible. The first two occurrences are in Genesis 6. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the time. The Bible speaks about man not just having a heart as an organ in your chest, but that in the center of you, also called your soul, your mind, will, and emotions, there are thoughts that are rolling around. And the Lord was examining them. In fact, the Proverbs say that He examines the motives behind what you're thinking. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't just, think, he doesn't just examine your thoughts. He examines why you're thinking what you're thinking. Isn't that interesting? Now, when God did this, when He examined the thoughts of man's heart, He saw that it was only evil all of the time. The Lord was grieved that He had made man on the earth, and His heart was filled with pain. Did you realize the Bible spoke about God as having a heart? Isn't that wild? In other words, since we know God didn't have a, a fleshly organ beating in His chest, I, I guess Jesus does, uh, what the Bible's speaking about is in the very center of God, in the intellect, in the mind, in the emotional realm, there was pain because of what He saw in man. Now, this is the scripture right before we see the flood. God fixed that problem. <laughs> you know, his, his, his solution was to find 
eight righteous people and start again. When the Bible speaks about a heart, it's talking about the center of something, just like the street in that shin. It's talking about who you really are in the inside of you. James teaches us something that we need to get into our heart before we move on. In James 1, verse 13, it says, When tempted, no one should say that God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, leads to death or gives birth to death. I put the pyramid here because it really always starts with a desire. But what is a desire? A desire is not much more than a thought that's been dwelling in your mind for a while. Those desires begin to pull at you. They begin to entice you until sin can be birthed. You know, there's not a sin that's ever been committed that did not start with somebody thinking about something that they wanted to do. It starts right in the mind. It starts right in the center of who you are when you begin to dwell on something. And the problem is, once you dwell on it for a while, it begins to exert an influence on you. It begins to take hold in your life. And the longer it's there, the stronger that gets. And if you let it stay there long enough, eventually it will give birth to something God does not want you to do, which is basically what sin is. The good you know you should do and don't, or the bad that you know you shouldn't do and do. If you dwell in sin long enough, if it grows, the Bible says it produces death. That's not because we have a performance-oriented salvation. That's not because if you sin nine times, it's okay, but you sin, sin the tenth time, you're done with. It's because the process of, process of sin in your life kills faith. It, it begins to squelch it, and faith is what saves you. Um, since we know that desires originate with a thought... We better be very careful what we allow to dwell in our minds in the thought realm. In Genesis 4, good morning. In Genesis 4, we really see one of the first examples of a thought that went really, really wrong. Uh, starting in the second verse. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of the flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Remember what I was telling you before the service started about boundaries? We learn things as we go through life. If you found out that in one area of your life you don't have the favor of the Lord, that's not the end of the world. It's not a good thing, but it should correct your course. When God called Paul... At the time, the same with Saul. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against the pricks, the goads? God had put things in his life showing him, you're out of the favor of God here. He'd been trying to direct him to get him to walk in a way that God wanted him to. Now, Cain's in the exact situation. He sees that his brother, Abel, has got favor because of what he's doing, and he doesn't. That should be a course correction change in his life. But instead, a thought enters his mind. It says, so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Isn't it interesting that the first frown that the Bible ever mentions comes from a murderer? Think about that next time you look in the mirror and don't see a smile. The first thing that the Bible mentions about somebody 
who was very angry and actually had conceived murder in their heart, was that they were unhappy. Paul picks up on this theme when he's talking to Galatians. He says, you were doing so good. Who cut, on, cut in on you? What happened to your joy? He noticed that something was wrong because they had no joy. So consequently, we talk an awful lot about joy in here. You know, it ought to be dripping off of us. And for the most part, it is. And I'm excited about that. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face so downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked Abel and killed him. You can see there's this process in Cain's life. It's not any different in your life. It's not any different in my life. It's just more dramatically stated in Cain's. It starts with envy and anger. He's jealous. His brother, how do we know he was jealous? We know he's jealous by what he did. His brother did something that God accepted. Should that reflect badly on Cain? Not at all. It's a chance for Cain to get something right. It's a chance. He's got, thank God, he's got an example. I hope all of you outshine me in Jesus. I hope all of you grow further than I do in Jesus. It'll give me examples to look at. It'll give me things to pattern my life after. You can teach me how to do it right. There's no place for envy in our hearts, but he had envy in his heart. This envy led to an anger. He has God's favor. I don't. These are thoughts that he had to begin to dwell on. And you know it because it birthed a desire. When it says that Cain says to his brother, let's go out to the field, he's begun to premeditate this thing in his heart. It's there. He's thinking about how to carry it out. This is not all that different than you have a negative interaction with somebody and the thoughts begin to roll through your mind. Wow, I never liked them much anyway. And they're always this way. Or whatever it is. And you begin to dwell on that and all of a sudden there's a desire to separate yourself from them when God says there can't be a division in the body. Or you see something you want and you begin to think about why you should have it and why you deserve it. And a desire is birthed in you that God didn't necessarily birth. But it starts with dwelling on a thought that you shouldn't be dwelling on. There's no place for this anger. God could see it in Cain. He could see it first because there wasn't a smile on his face, which is how God intended it to be. And then secondly, he could see it because he said there's sin crouching at your door. What was the sin? The sin was that thought he had begun to dwell on. He had begun to think, my brother's accepted and I'm not. You know, And he started to get angry about it. And God said, hey, why are you angry, man? There's sin crouching at your door. You have to master it. Now, when we think of mastering sin, you think of not doing things. You think, well, if I'm going to master sin, I won't curse. I won't do whatever. Crack cocaine. I, don't I know that's what you're struggling with. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but you think of not doing things. That's not what God was talking about. We had not reached that stage yet. God said, sin is crouching at your door, Cain, and you have to master it. He was talking about mastering his emotions and his thoughts. See, Christians don't break down in that we're running out having lurid relationships with, you know, strangers in a bar usually. Christians break down in their thoughts. We begin to break down by not mastering our thoughts. We begin to dwell on things that God says you can't dwell on. You're not allowed to. 
And you remember that when you call Him Lord, what you're saying is you literally are my owner and controller. That means He has the right to tell you what to think. Well, we don't like that, do we? We don't want to give up that sovereignty. That's what salvation is. Is Lord, you have the right to choose for me everything. I've heard it said about the news media, they may not be able to tell you what to think because you're an individual, but they can tell you what to think about because they're introducing that over. Well, that's true in our lives. You know, sometimes our environment may cause thoughts to come into our minds. You know, you see things, you do things that cause certain thoughts to be there. But it cannot be something that takes such hold of you that you can't shake it. Sometimes it is real work to cast down a thought. You ever had somebody really do something ugly to you and the Bible says you have to forgive? And every time you see them, every time you think about it, that thought comes up? It's work to cast it down. But you have to. Because once this thought turns into a desire and it gives birth to sin, if you don't stop the process, then it births death in people around you and in you. In Saul's life, talking about King Saul here, nearly a thousand years before Jesus, we see some really vivid examples. And I, you may learn something about Saul you didn't know today. If I ask you what are the first things that come to mind about Saul, you might think of a lot of negative things, but you wouldn't really usually think of a lot of positive things, would you? I mean, that's not something that you would normally come to mind. You find out Saul had a pretty good start. Do you remember what, uh, what was birthed in Cain's heart that caused him to kill his brother? Jealousy. Envy, huh? Oh, look at that. Y'all watch as that kind of disperses through the water. Listen to me, but watch that. Well, in Saul's life, we had a good start. In fact, 1 Samuel 10, starting in verse 1, speaks of Saul's early days. It says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil, and he poured it on Saul's head, and kissed him, saying, Have not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? That's a pretty good start, isn't it? You know, we like to say that Saul was the people's choice. And that's true. And Saul does end up typifying the Antichrist. But that's not where he started. He started as somebody that God Himself anointed as a ruler over the people. He was anointed of God. When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelta on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkeys you set out to look for have been found and now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He is asking, what shall I do about my son? Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. So, God, why on earth are you reading all of that? Not only did his life start in the anointing, look at what happened. This prophet is telling him, is building his faith by saying, you know that what I'm doing is of God, and this is how you're going to know it. I'm going to give you very specific signs. Not just that you're going to meet somebody, but how many goats they're going to be carrying, where they're, what direction they're going to be heading, what they're doing. And as you see these fulfilled, you'll know that what I'm telling you is true. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. 
As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high places with lyres, tambourines, flutes, and harps being played before them. And they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power and you will prophesy with them. You will be changed into a different person. Did you know that the Bible describes Saul as being born again? I bet you never thought about that before, huh? This guy had such an experience with God that the prophet stands up and says, man, I'm anointing you as king over God's people. You're called to be a king, Saul. And you know what? You're going to meet these people. This is going to happen. Then this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And you'll know that I'm with you. Your heart is going to be changed. You'll be like a different person. Isn't that what the Bible teaches about us? You're anointed to be with the king. In fact, you will rule with him that your heart will be changed into a different person. Doesn't the Bible teach us that? Isn't that what Jesus was telling Nicodemus? Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hands find to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. In the very center of Saul, in his intellect, in his emotional realm, in his heart, God caused change to happen. He made him a new man. Well, if that's true, what happened to King Saul? Why don't you hear about that? When you hear about Saul being taught, you hear, man, a coward. A head taller than all the rest of the people. Somebody who did not earn God's favor. Somebody who tried to kill King David, a man after God's heart. All of those things. What happened to Saul? How do you start like that and not end up well? I was in a church for years that said that's not possible. It's not possible. Once you start on the right path, you never... I mean, nothing could happen to cause you to deviate from it. If it does, you were never on the right path. That's ridiculous. Look at Saul's life. Did it say that he was a new person? That God was with him? That God had changed his heart? How did Saul die? He did not die in God's favor. Like most who are new to the walk with God, Saul's first experiences were full of miracles and he was truly changed. Man, you remember when you first became a Christian? I mean, Jesus told you which way to turn at the end of the street. You know, whether you should buy a baby's roof or three musketeers. You know, you felt like He was carrying you every step of the way. And it was miraculous and it was awesome. And this helped facilitate a change in your life. And it was there. Your heart became new. But why does the Bible speak so negatively of him? Where did he go wrong? He encountered trials just like you do. In fact, just like every man of God does. That's why on Wednesday night I taught about overcoming trials. If you hadn't heard that message, you need to. It was called Born Blind. And it had to do with every obstacle in your life being an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. I wish Saul had heard that message. Look at his first test. Do you remember what Samuel told him? You go to Gilgal. I want you to go there. After all of these miraculous things happen, after you prophesy, after your hearts become totally new and you know that God is with you, go to Gilgal and do nothing until I get there. It'll be Seven days. Wait for me. Do you remember that? Okay, 1 Samuel 13, verse 5. 
The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and pits and the cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. They began to look around them. They knew God had called them, but the thought had creeped in their hearts. This is too many people for us to beat. It was there and it was an overwhelming thought because they dwelt on it. They allowed it to be there. Saul remained at Gilgal. That's good. That's what Samuel told him to do. And all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. Have you ever been in a situation where you thought God said, I want you to do thus and so? And you started to do that. And then didn't look like He was coming through for you. It's right where He is. A trial. An obstacle. I thought Samuel said seven days and He would be here. Now everybody around me is scared. I'm supposed to wait, but it's been seven days. Where is He? He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. And Saul offered up the burnt offering Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. How many times have you thought God will not come through for you? How many times has the thought entered your mind? I know the Word says, but. I know God wants, but. Then you screwed up and did something you weren't supposed to do only to see that God worked it out anyway. You know? How many times? Now, this guy's no different. He's right there. God has told him what to do. But something happens. He begins to look around him. He begins to be affected by the fear of the people that are around him. Just as he finished blowing it, God came through. That would teach you a lesson, wouldn't you think? Wouldn't you think the next time you were in that position, the next time you were tempted to think God might not come through, you'd remember, ooh, last time I gave up and God came through immediately after I had just given up. I saw a sign on a billboard one time that says, if you quit, you'll never know how close you came to succeeding. Well, that is so true. You remember that Wednesday night, one of the things that developed maturity was perseverance? You have to learn to persevere if you want to be considered mature in the faith. Now, here is uh, Samuel showing up. He says, what have you done? Asked Samuel. That's verse 11. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer a burnt offering. First off, as a Christian, as somebody whose heart God has changed, knowing that God is with you, anointed of God, you're not allowed to think that God won't come through for you. Now, you remember what I said about the news media? The thought may cross your mind, but you're not allowed to take that down into your heart and dwell on it. Because when you do, it will compel you to do something that God says don't do. There are times you can develop habits that are hard to break, and I know that. 
the easiest thing in the world is to stop sin at its inception. And it always starts with a thought. You know, I, I'm a thinker. I lay at bed in bed at night often for a couple hours in the evening, unwinding from the day. I think about things way more than I should. That's how I get these kind of messages, in fact, that come right out of my personal weakness. There are some thoughts Christians are not allowed to have. You can't assume bad behavior if you're brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't think God won't come through for you. You can't think He's lying. You can't think it won't work for you. You can't think things about you that the Bible says are different. Part of the Christian walk revolves around you mastering your thoughts. And it's hard to do. It comes with practice. But if you don't, they compel you to act foolishly. That's what Samuel said. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord that the Lord your God gave you. If you had, He would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after His own heart. And He appointed him leader of His people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now the fact that what Samuel tells Saul is, buddy, you just blew it. God's going to have to raise up somebody after His heart, own heart, proves that Saul had a heart problem. Doesn't it? If the solution is we're going to have to raise up somebody with a different kind of heart, that shows that something was wrong with Saul's. But in the previous slide, or a couple of slides ago, didn't we see that God had given him a new heart? He had changed his heart? So how did, how did Saul make dirty what God had just made clean? He accepted something into it that God didn't want him to. What happened to Saul's heart? Because fear was present, and friends, I want to tell you right now, fear is a faith killer. Somebody defined it as false evidence appearing real. You know, what faith does is faith looks at a situation and says, I can see that this looks hopeless in the natural. But I know that God has said it will turn out differently. So although I see that it doesn't look good, I will trust in what God said. Faith acknowledges your circumstances and trust God to overcome them. Fear does just the opposite. Regardless of what your circumstances actually are, fear tells you this will not work out well for you. It's going to be bad, I promise. Fear works in direct opposition to faith. Because so much fear was present, Saul began to have unhealthy thoughts. One of them was, Samuel's not coming. Why? Why would he think Samuel's not coming? Has everything that Samuel told him been true so far? So why on earth would he think he's not coming? Because he began to dwell on a thought that he wasn't supposed to. Oh, the men are going to scatter. I'm scared. It's the seventh day. Evidently, the seventh day wasn't over because Samuel showed up on the seventh day. Sometimes we sit around and we contemplate our situations and in all of our reasoning, we begin to reason God right out of the equation. I know God said to do this, but I mean, how am I going to pay my bills? What if my kids get sick? What happens if this... And fear begins to creep in and you dwell on that. And then pretty soon you have talked yourself into why you cannot do what God has told you to do. And because you're a Christian and you can't admit that you're not going to do what God said, us charismatics are the worst in the world. Oh, well, I think God's calling me a new direction now. Or, 
I don't think God really said. Every time I get that thought, I don't think God really said that to me after I know He did. You know whose voice I hear in my head? That serpent. Did God really say you can't eat of it? Every time I know that God's called me to do something and I feel that coming up in me, am I sure that He called me to do this? I recognize the serpent's word. Calling into question God's word. Did God really say? You remember that's what He said to Eve right before she ate? You remember that? We need to be wise about the thoughts that we entertain because the natural cycle is that if fear is present, if some unhealthy emotion is present, you will have unhealthy thoughts and they will compel you to sin. You know, in movies sometimes they'll show torture uh, and they will. It, it's a generally accepted fact that if somebody's put in a situation long enough, eventually all of us break in some regard. If uh, I deny Matt food and water and... I torture him physically. Over a long period of time, he'll tell me whatever I want to know. I mean, that's a generally accepted fact. I have no idea if it's true. Never having been around it, I hope never to find out. But something that I do know is true, something that I'm certain is true, is if you dwell on an unhealthy thought long enough, it will absolutely compel you to do something God tells you not to do. So you have to stop it at the moment it enters your mind. And every time it starts to rise itself up, you push it out. When Matt and I were just babies, and I know we're not much more than babies now, we were painting at this job. We were basically working as janitors. High calling in Christ, right? And uh, we were painting, and Matt told me something that he said, you know, every time that I start to have a thought about that or this, whatever it was, he said, this phrase comes to me, dirt, get down. What Matt was really teaching me, what he was really telling me at that time was every time he felt a thought come up that shouldn't come up, he just thought of it like dusting dirt off of himself. Get down. Get away from me. And it's work. Not long after that, he had a dream where things were coming up out of the earth. Earthly thoughts. But they looked like we were kids. So they looked like some kind of a demonic thing. And God caused a sheet to appear. A righteous standard. That Matt rolled up and he beat them down all around him. This was a way that God could teach a 17, 18-year-old man that things will rise from your flesh. Thoughts will come up that shouldn't be there. But God has provided us the tools to beat them off, to cast them out. But when you make a treaty and you think, oh, it's all right, I can, just, I can think about it. I can dwell in unforgiveness. I can dwell in anger. I can dwell in lust. I can dwell in fear, whatever it is eventually it will kill your faith in producing you things that ought not be there. And it did in Saul. Remember what James said, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire. Notice something. Once these thoughts stay in you long enough, you take possession of them. See, you can have all kind of crazy random thoughts. Your mind can be a little bit like a train station at times. If you're ADD, it'd be like a busy train station. But the moment that you begin to dwell on it, they're not just random thoughts that are passing through your mind. It's something that you've begun to take ownership of. Now it becomes your own thought. See, the the devil's job, if you will, and I, I don't want to give him a job description. He and I are trying not to be on speaking terms. But what he really does is introduce a thing to you. But he cannot make you think about it. He can't cause you to dwell on that. He can just drag a fishing lure in front of your face. 
But at the moment that you become to get interested in it, and you start to think about it, and you start to dwell on it, now it's your own evil desire. And once you take possession of these bad thoughts, these desires, the Bible says, he is dragged away and enticed. What's enticement? You know, to be enticed means that you've decided there's something out there that you want and it's calling to you. Isn't it an amazing transformation that happens in Christians? Thought comes, you know, oh, I know that that's not right. So-and-so loves me. They don't think badly of me. But it comes back. And the next time, well, maybe they do think badly of me. Oh, but we're all Christians. Then the third time, no, I, I think I know they think badly of me. Now all of a sudden, you've accepted something that you weren't supposed to. You've begun to assume that they think badly of you. And pretty soon it will entice you to treat them differently. Or to assume that they're treating you differently. And now we have this desires enticed you to begin to sin. Because your behavior will begin to change at that point. Y'all, this is how every argument that has ever happened in the kingdom happens. Paul said one time, we have divine power. We can demolish every argument or pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of Christ because we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. You know what a pretension is? Arguments as to who is right. Boy, isn't that a powerful thought that gets in us. Well, I know Claire said that and Judah said that, but I'm right. I thought in Jesus we gave up the right to be right. Can you know that you are right? Sure. But when you begin to dwell on that, I'm right, they're wrong, it'll start to affect your behavior, I promise. Fear was present. Saul thought something he wasn't allowed to think. Don't buy into the lie. Do not buy into the lie. I can't help them what I think. You absolutely can. The Bible says you can. That thought birthed the desire to do something God said don't do. You think it's a fair fair thing that we can infer from the text? Cain knew he wasn't supposed to kill Abel. <laughs> I mean, can, can we start there? That desire enticed him to sin, and if he isn't careful, it'll produce death. Saul saw fear. This began to work on him. He began to think God wasn't coming through. Then he began to act in a way that caused him to lose. Now think about what he lost. Who succeeded him? David. David's kingdom, David's house, is the one that was promised. You have a ruler on your throne forever and ever and ever. A promised son who will reign over all of the world in peace. That's Jesus. Did you hear what Samuel said to Saul? If you had not done this, your kingdom would have endured forever. But since you did this, it will be taken from you and given to a man after God's own heart. Do you realize what he passed up because of a thought? He passed up the ability to birth the Messiah. He passed up the ability to have in his lineage the guy that would bring peace to the whole world. Now, friends, I could, I could accept it. It wouldn't, wouldn't be so bad to me if the way that I sin was Bobby and Brad and David and Matt and all you guys came running and jumped on me and beat me up until I did what you told me to do. But what kind of dandelion gets beat up by a thought until he rejects God? We do it. We do it all of the time. Saul's second big test. You know, God's a patient guy. Have you noticed that? 
Sometimes we can see God's patience at work in other people's lives, but we act like He... he you know, I know God's forgiveness is good enough for Bobby, but me, I want to beat myself up and torture myself for a while about it. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, I was talking with somebody the other day who said, can you believe that guy? He shot a judge. He shot a, a courtroom clerk. He was in jail for all kind of abhorrent things. And God saved him. I said, you believe he did? Oh, yeah, man. God can save anybody. But the very guy who's telling me that was beating himself up about something that happened years ago. How is it that we can believe God's grace is there for a brother who did something horrible but have trouble accepting it ourselves? That's off subject. But anyway, so second big test. Samuel 15, verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you as king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Amalek is an ancient uh, enemy of Israel. Depending on who you talk to, uh, people feel differently about uh, Amalek in Israel today. But they see, many Jews in Israel today see Amalek's spirit still attacking Israel, although there's not uh, literal Amalekites there, and eroding away at Israel, and it kind of personifies some of the things that they face. We always kind of put the Philistines against Israel, but the first people that really came against them as they came out of Egypt were the Amalekites, and they were a warlike people. In fact, the first time that Joshua, the word for Jesus, Yeshua, ever appears in the Bible is to come and fight the Amalekites. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so here we are uh, 600 years after they've come out of Egypt and uh, they're still dealing with the Amalekites and in verse 3. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. You ever heard God is love? And my loving God would never... There are times in history that God has said to do some really harsh things. How'd you like to be Abraham and in fact, I'd like you to take your son up there. Go to the place I tell you to and then put him to death. Yeah? I mean, there are some things God said to do that are incredibly hard. But part of you trusting him doesn't mean that you become a psycho and a murderer and end up in jail. Part of you trusting him is knowing that because of his character, he wouldn't tell you to do anything that he didn't have a reason for. It turns out that these Amalekites would be a thorn in Israel's side forever. Their descendants are still there today as a thorn in their side. But the Bible teaches first the natural and then the spiritual. What this principle is really for in you is that there is a part of your nature, kind of like those things coming up out of the earth and Matt's dream that he was beating back, that is at war with God. Paul talked about this in Romans 7. He said, the good things I want to do, I just can't do. And the very things I don't want to do, that I keep finding myself doing. So what is it? He said, there's a, a war within the members of my body. But in my uh, mind, I'm a slave to God's law. That's, that's how Paul said that. Amalek in your life is all of those thoughts, all of those things that you know you're not supposed to do. You're not allowed to keep any one of them. Not one. You have to go root it out and kill every one of them. But when you've got this spirit of Saul... This one unable to master your thoughts and sin? How did he do? 1 Samuel 15, verse 7. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites. That's good. He started on the Christian walk. 
all the way from Havilah to Shur, to east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. I thought Samuel just said, kill every man, every woman, every child, every donkey, every camel, everything there. He started out, he began warfare, but then he stopped short. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle. wonder why they didn't keep the bad stuff. Why did they keep the best, do you think? What a shame it would be to waste this. I mean, after all, God could use it, couldn't He? Have you ever had that thought? God said, I want you to do... I want you to leave that job. And you thought... I leave, so I don't know what I'm going to do for an income. And after all, I can tithe more if I'm working here. I can, I can do more for God if I do stay right here. And pretty soon, you're supposed to have been at war with Amalek, and you're making treaties with him. And it starts with a thought. I want to keep the best stuff here. Let's not waste that. These they were unwilling to destroy. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed we don't have a problem rooting out of our life some things that are despised. There are some sins in your life that you hate. And so you war against them. And you don't have a problem being at war with it. The problem comes with the ones that you really would like to hang on to. I guess we probably not give examples of those, huh? You know what I'm talking about, though. There are some things that you really just don't want to give up. You're used to keeping it. been there a long time in your life. You've made a treaty to keep those thoughts right there. And you're hoping to God that nobody ever finds that out. But God searches the innermost parts of a human being. He leaves no stone unturned. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Samuel was a man of God. And it grieved him. He had been a part of installing this guy as king and now he's turning out to be a failure. I tell you, from a pastor's standpoint, there's nothing worse than seeing somebody come into the kingdom doing so well. And then all of a sudden, a thought, and it's usually hurt feelings, if I just want to be totally honest, gets in there and before long, a few weeks, a few months goes by, they're not in the kingdom anymore. Or at least not acting like it. And you're grieved. You're grieved because you poured into their life you saw them on the right path and then they took a total right turn and are somewhere else. And what's really weird is years later, if there's not repentance that occurs, they end up worse off than they ever were in the beginning. You know? I one time could not stop. I had something going on in my house and I could not stop everything at that very moment and go help somebody that was a new Christian. I'd been with them almost every day for months. But... There was a need in my immediate house that I just could not stop right then. I said, hey, brother, uh, I tell you what, go right down the street. There's another brother there. I think he could help you with that. The guy went to that brother's house who also, as luck would have it, was totally tied up and just couldn't. The thought got in that guy's mind at that time, this church doesn't care about me. They don't love me. Now, we'd been there for months every time they needed anything. But in one evening, the thought was birthed in him. They don't really care about me. And last I heard, this guy was smoking dope, hanging out in worse places than he was when I met him. And it started with a thought that the Bible says he should cast down. 
Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Samuel cries out all night in verse 12. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. Isn't it interesting? Samuel tells Saul, I want you to go and I want you to wipe everything out. But what Saul does is go wipe out what he wants to, keeps what he wants to, and then decides he does such a good job, he sets up a monument in his own honor. We're so quick to pat ourselves on the back for a job half done. You know? He said, what are you talking about, Eric? You ever had a conversation went like this? And when he said that, I wanted to smack him. I mean, I wanted to, but I didn't because I'm a Christian. Oh, well, good for you. Good for you. You had hate and murder in your heart, but you didn't actually carry it out. I'm so proud of you. Let's set up a monument in your honor. See, maturity in Christ is to realize that what's going on around you is a part of a much bigger picture. People are often puppets on a string of spiritual powers. They really are. So much so that Paul reminds us in Ephesians, he says, you're not waging war against them, but against spiritual principalities and powers in high places. So that when somebody's sitting there instead of thinking, I wanted to hurt him, but I didn't, and being like Saul, going to set up a monument in your own honor, you can look at somebody with mercy and compassion. You can say, this poor guy does not even realize it. This poor young woman does not even realize what they're doing. That's how somebody like Stephen looks out while people are throwing rocks that are tearing his face apart, that are killing him, and says, forgive me, Father. They don't know what they're doing. That's the only way that could happen. You throw a rock at the souls of this world, though, and you get one thrown right back at you. Early morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told that he was there setting up a monument. And then in verse 13, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Well, haven't we been juvenile like this at times? I did so good. I did what God said to do. Then when you think back about it, you did it with a crappy attitude. You did it in a way that nobody wants to be around you. You know? Well, I went and I, I did that. That uh, Maybe God put it on your heart to go mow somebody's grass. But the whole time you were there mowing their grass, you're upset at how hard it was. You're mad that somebody else didn't do it. You thought, my God, there's younger people in the church that could have done this. Whatever it is, did it with a bad attitude. But you carried out the instructions. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? <laughs> I love Samuel. He says, oh, you carried out God's instructions. What are all these sounds I'm hearing? Everything's supposed to be dead. There are times that people say, I'm in the will of God and I know it. But you can hear the bleeding sheep in the background in their lives. All of the signs point to, you told me to sit down, so I'm sitting down, but I'm standing up on the inside, buddy. Yeah. It's called willful disobedience. <laughs> you know? I mean, say, oh yeah, I'm complying because I have to, but I really don't want to. You can see it in kids real clearly, can't you? The arms crossed, you know, and they... We do it too, though. But Samuel said, what is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord. Watch this change in wording. The Lord, your God but we totally destroyed the rest. 
Saul's actually beginning to feel distant from God at this point. Insecure about his relationship because disobedience brings insecurity in your relationship with the Lord. When you know you did exactly what God told you to do, there's a confidence that is growing and you're ready for the next task and you're excited. When you know that you did not do what God told you to do, there's an insecurity that is born. He's, now he's talking about the Lord Samuel's God. Prior it had been Saul's God too, right? Stop. This is a nice way to say, shut up. In Hebrew, this is sheket. <laughs> I love that word. Sheket. I tell my kids that because we're not allowed to say shut up in my house. We, we don't do that. So I look at them and say, sheket. <laughs> Stop! Sheket! Samuel said to Saul, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. In other words, hey buddy, you remember I called you? You remember I'm the one came and anointed you and I gave you the specific instructions? Shut your mouth for a minute. Let me tell you what God's told me about you. You don't ever want to have these kind of discussions with men of God. If you back somebody in the corner that really hears from God, what you get is something you don't want. It's much better to be obedient ahead of time. That's why Paul told the Corinthian church, he said, I've written you about this twice. When I come, I'd prefer to be gentle. Are you going to make me come with a stick? A man told that to a group of other men. Isn't that an odd thing to say? There is spiritual authority and Samuel definitely had it. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes. Once small in your own eyes. Boy, in Christ, we start off, we know, small in our own eyes. But as time goes by, everybody else is small. We've become great men and women of God who do no wrong and everybody else is filled with flaws. Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. He has sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. <laughs> I love when you're in a discussion with somebody and it is perfectly evident to anybody that would back off the situation and look, we've got grievous sin here. But there is a nature in us that wants to defend ourselves and that defending action shows that you're in sin. You remember Jesus? People said horrible, wicked things about it. But because he knew they weren't true and because he knew he had the favor of the Father, he kept his mouth shut. Didn't bother him a bit. See, when you feel like you have to defend yourself to people, that's a good clue you're not standing on the right ground to start with. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. Really? <laughs> and brought back Agag, their king. I completely destroyed the Amalekites, except I brought back an Amalekite. Isn't it strange how wrong thoughts will twist your thinking? But they do. The soldiers, now we're going to blame it on his subordinates. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. It's true I was a little disobedient, but I did it for you. Oh, I know that I did what I wasn't supposed to do, but I was really thinking of you. Come on, deception. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Guys, nothing you could do for God, no monument you could build Him, 
No gigantic church complex with your name on it somewhere would please God as much as you just doing whatever it is He told you to do. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instruction. Why did he do it? I was afraid of the people, so I gave in to them. He was afraid of the people God had set over him to rule. Did the people elect Saul? No. Did he work for the people? Mm-mm. Why was he afraid of them? His trust, in fact, you see Saul counting the men a lot, was in his ability to rule and be received by the people instead of God who installed him as king. That's interesting. This message could really ring home with some pastors. You guys didn't hire me. You didn't vote me in. My ability to be a pastor doesn't depend upon how well you've received me. It depends upon my ability to hear from God who installed me as a pastor. Well, there's a lot of people that can learn that message. Keeps you from worrying about how you're going to pay bills. Keeps you from worrying what happens if you tell the truth and half the church leaves. Keeps you from worrying about a great many things. In fact, when you get those thoughts, you're not allowed to entertain them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. What was it you think that caused Saul? What was in Saul's heart? What thoughts compelled him to do what he shouldn't do? Fear. Cowardice. You know, Revelation 21 says cowards will not inherit the kingdom of God. Isn't that interesting? Cowards. We don't like to think of ourselves as cowards, but when we yield to thoughts that God says we're not supposed to have, We're showing cowardice, not being the bold men and women of God that we've been called to lay hold of the kingdom. How did he do? That's the wrong slide. There we go. Unbridled thoughts lead to sin and death. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 and 6 say, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. When you start with a bad thought, you end up with bad desires. Your bad desires will entice you to do evil. And when you're enticed to do evil and that dwells there, you will eventually sin. All sin leads to death and defeat. It just does. This is the cycle, but the easiest place to stop it is with the bad thought. You need to identify it and you need to cast it down. In my life, I had the fortune of spending some time with uh, my grandfather on my mother's side. I was roofing a house with him. And he began to tell me stories about my family uh, heritage that I, I just didn't know. And uh, I was actually looking through an old photo album and uh, some letters that were written. It seems, have you noticed with older folks, the older they get, it gets much more important to them to feel like there's some kind of legacy being left. They want you to know everybody that was in the Civil War in your family and, you know, whatever, all the way back to antiquity. Well, as we began to do that and look at some of it. And at first, honestly, I was just humoring him. I had no idea that God would use this to impact my life. Something really powerful came over me. It hit me very hard. 
at one point in the genealogy, starting with my great-great-grandfather, George Rhodes, we had all biblical names. I mean, everybody before George had biblical names. At George, we had a break in it. George's son had a biblical name, and from there it stopped. And I thought, what is that? And I asked my grandfather about him, and here's the story that I heard. My great-great-grandfather, George Rhodes, was on a horse. This is how long ago this was, traveling from one town to another town. He was an avid church attender. Loved the Lord by all accounts. Family was in church all of their lives. And he was singing because he was really happy. Okay? But in those days, and in some churches today, it was thought that if you were happy, if you were singing, if you were out beside yourself, you must be drunk. I mean, this is not how decent religious folks conduct themselves. I want so badly to tell you the names of this church, but it really doesn't matter, does it? You remember on the day of Pentecost, these people were out like Peter and John. They're happy. They're exuberant. They're preaching. What did everybody say about them? They were drunk. So, George Rhodes is riding from one town to another and a pastor overhears him singing. Assumes that he's drunk. And do you know what Sunday morning service was about from the bully bully pulpit? Drunkenness. And how my great-grandfather George Rhodes had been drunk. What do you think that did in George's life? George's life, he had this little thing get dropped in his heart called hurt feelings. And just like that drop I just put in this vase, it began to sink in him and permeate him till it reached a place of equilibrium in his life. And although he had named his son Moses and had intended on raising his family in the Lord, from this point forward, George's life was different. The stories in his life after that are about how big and strong and tough he was. What a carouser he had become and a brawler. And what's funny is the people that were telling these stories, they didn't even recognize the change. They saw it all as the pastor's fault, which it had something to do with, and didn't acknowledge at all that George had a responsibility to cast that thought down. He had a response. He had a responsibility to not let hurt feelings ruin his life. But you know what you see in the rest of this? I could get in trouble for this, I guess, but that's all right. You see that after his son Moses Rhodes, who did not grow up in church, although he was destined to, came my grandfather, Rocky Rhodes, then my mother, Janice, and then me. That's five generations of people that did not grow up in church because one guy got his feelings hurt. Now, what you don't see on that chart are all of Rocky's brothers, all of Jan's sisters, brothers, and all of their kids. See, at a strategic place in my family's history, somebody got their feelings hurt. They got out of church, risking five generations of people to go to hell. Isn't that interesting? If you heard today, in fact, BP blew up not long ago. BP in Texas City. Anybody remember how many people died? About 15. There may be 15 or 20 more that are still in critical condition. Lots of people, right? That's horrible. This made national news, hadn't it? International news. If you heard today that a bus wrecked down the street and a hundred people on the way to a family reunion died, wouldn't you be very sad? One guy's hurt feelings 
risked five generations of people going to hell. Isn't that something? Do you think that that pastor's life was ruined after that? He sinned. He made a mistake. Then he went on with his life. I bet his family is still serving God. This is not the end of my family's history, and I'm glad about that. And no sin's the end of your family's history. We are anointed. I don't want you reading that yet. We are anointed. <laughs> teaser. We're anointed to be generation changers. The truth is, the devil's stolen from every one of you. He's tempted you to do things you ought not do. But at this point today, it can be a strategic inflection point in your life. You can decide, not only will I not sin in that way, I'm going to advance the kingdom of God and take back what the devil's stolen. On this chart, I began working for me right back up to everybody that was alive with the gospel. I was successful with some, not successful with others, but our lives are not over yet. Her feelings caused that, though. Proverbs 4.23 Pollution kills your heart. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Do you think it was important for George Rhodes to guard the wellspring of his heart? I bet he had no idea how that one little hurt feeling was going to transform his family lineage. So that the stories that were told about the family lineage were no longer that so-and-so served God. But how wicked somebody was. Guys, God says that our heart is a wellspring and it has to be guarded. In medieval times and in ancient times, if you wanted to utterly decimate an opponent, you didn't just go in and kill them. You didn't just burn their fields. You poured salt in their well. Because everybody needs water to survive. Everybody needs it. That's why the Bible speaks about your heart in this way. You have to protect it in the same way that you would protect a well. You have to protect your heart as a source of life. Those pictures of pollution are nasty, huh? That vase has become pretty nasty, hadn't it? That started with pure, pure clear water. And now that putrid-looking water in there is polluted by three things. Fear, hurt feelings, and envy. What God had intended to be clear is now polluted with fear and envy and hurt feelings. Anybody in here want to drink that? Anybody in here like to bathe in that? Is that really good for what it was intended for anymore? It's in a flower vase. You want to plant some flowers in it? See how they grow? You cannot allow things to enter your heart that pollute you. You can't allow contaminants to stay in there. They will corrupt you thoroughly. The Bible speaks about you escaping the corruption of this world. But we can't be like dogs or pigs that return to our own swallow. Swaller? Squaller? Filth? Whatever. Yeah, you got it. Lessons from David's life. Early, and I promise we're almost done. Y'all can hang in there with me a few more minutes, can't you? Early in the morning, this is 1 Samuel 17, 20. I figure if David's a man after God's own heart, we could look at some things David did and maybe it'll teach us how to protect our hearts. Early in the morning, David left the flock. 1 Samuel 17, 20. With a shepherd. Left the flock with a shepherd. Loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. 
Israel and Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies and ran to the battle lines and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in fear. Now, the Israelites had been saying, Did you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. People have been upset about taxes as long as there's been government. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. Already, everybody else is in fear. They're hiding. And David's reasoned in his heart, who's this guy to defy God? David's not overcome with a thought of fear because he knows who God is. The Bible says that perfect love drives out fear. Most human emotions revolve around fear and grief. Most do. And the perfect answer for both of them is seeking the kingdom first. Then you get everything you need. Greed doesn't have a place. And the perfect love of the Father. He loves me and he's in control. That drives out fear. David had that. The reason David's heart was said to be like God is because he did the things God does. They repeated everything that had been said. Now, look what David's accused of. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger. Ooh, sounds like he's got a thought he's not supposed to have. Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle and die. David could really respond to that ugly, couldn't he? Is that true about David? Do you remember what I said earlier about when you're attacked, though, and you know you're with God? You really don't have a need to defend yourself because you feel the assurance that comes from God. Now, what have I done, said David? Can I even speak? He then turned to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. David could look around, and although he was being accused of having a wicked heart, he could look and see everybody's hearts were full of fear. He was concerned about that. His wasn't because... The thought that God was with him was in his heart. Same thought Saul should have had. In fact, this is the same scenario Saul faced. You remember Saul was sitting there, an overwhelming army surrounding him. The troops were scared. And then he began to get worried about it. Wasn't Saul told God was with him too? Mm-hmm. very first slide we looked at about it. David not only preserved his heart, he was concerned about other people's. I had this the other night and I modified it a little bit for today. Wednesday night when I taught on overcoming and files, we learned that every obstacle in your life is an opportunity for God's power to be displayed, to create an overcoming faith. Every one. There is a giant who had been frightening all of Israel. They started thinking God's not big enough to fix this problem. That's a huge obstacle. And it burst in on them. They went and hid. David the one man in Israel who had mastered his thoughts regarding this subject, 
saw it simply as an opportunity for God to display His power. When crisis comes in your life and the thoughts begin to hit you, you have to learn to see it as an opportunity for God to display His power, not as an opportunity for failure. And you know what? God doesn't let people down. We let Him down, but He does not let us down. Because of this, in this overcoming attitude, He set an example for us. He set an example for all of Israel to where you can look at Him and say, don't lose heart. And the same message is true today. Don't lose heart. We don't like to think of it as being that way. But when you entertain thoughts you shouldn't and you begin to dwell on the heart that God gave you gets changed into something polluted and nasty and not full of faith anymore. Psalm 119.30 says, I have chosen the way of truth. I have set my heart on your laws. Those are David's words. Something that is important that you do every day. Just like that radio dial there. Numbers are very close on radio dials. And in a crowded market like Houston, a very fine adjustment can put you on a radically different station. You can go from the Vietnamese station to the Korean station to the Hispanic station to some heavy metal station to people singing about Jesus. All with a slight adjustment on that. We have to learn to set our hearts on what God says to set our hearts on. good place to start is with His Word. If you are feeding your heart, your intellect, your mind, your will, your emotions with God's Word, then when those thoughts come, it's easier to discard them. That's why it's important that you stay in the Word. With so many things competing for your thoughts, competing for your heart, it's really important that you make the fine adjustments. You know, we think, well, I'm not out living like I used to. Well, that's not good enough. The Bible says be perfect. Putting to death evil desires. Look at Colossians 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. When a thought tries to enter your heart, you compare it with what you know about God. And if it doesn't add up, you throw it out. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. When you go to war with Amalek in your life, don't save any part of it. Put to death Agag. Put to to death the sheep. Put to death whatever does not line up with God's Word. It's not okay to keep it around. Earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. What this is basically teaching is God's given you a new heart. He's given you a new start. Now work not to let things creep into it. Put them out of your heart. Why was David's heart considered pure? In Acts 13, verse 22, After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. David's heart was said to be like God's because he did the work of God. But how did he prevent his heart from being polluted? He had this attitude. 
Psalm 141, verse 4. Let not my heart be drawn to what is evil, to take part in wicked deeds with men who are evildoers. Let me not eat of their delicacies. What he's speaking of there is let me not be enticed by things that I shouldn't. Let me not eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil on my head. My head will not refuse it. If your attitude is, I would rather be stricken than go astray, then you are thankful. You are thankful for opportunities like this one today to get your heart right. David messed up several times in his life. In fact, the song that we sang today, Created Me a Clean Heart, is Psalm 51. And it comes immediately after David totally blew it. They committed murder and adultery. And yet the Bible still says his heart was like God's. Why? He didn't stay that way. He didn't stay that way at all. He began to cry out, Create in me a clean heart. Lord, what You gave me that was pure and beautiful, I have fouled up. It's become nasty and I need You to make it new again. Help me. And God did because He's merciful and He will for us. A healthy heart starts with what you put into it. The title this morning was A Healthy Heart, Avoiding Pollution. What you put into your heart affects it. Thoughts governed by the Word cause your faith to rise. As your faith rises, you begin to view all obstacles and trials as opportunities for God to come through. That leads you into doing God's work because you're not prevented from it through fear. As you do God's work, you enjoy an abundant life. You're happy. You're confident. You know God is with you. That abundant life is what causes you to have a heart that is like God's. That really is something that we need to get in our spirit. This is also why success breeds success. If you're successful in casting down thoughts you're not supposed to have, then your faith is successful. If your faith is successful, then you're not overcome by trials. And in that perseverance and maturity that's done, you begin to see God's work done around you and it encourages you and it makes your life worth living. Most people that are unhappy today are not unhappy because they don't have enough money. I know it seems that way. But when you give them enough money, they're still not happy. Most people are not unhappy because they don't have something. They're unhappy because they don't feel like their life is a fulfilling life. That's because they're not doing God's work and not seeing the abundant life. And it starts with wrong thinking. Pollution can be cleansed away. John 4.14 says, But whoever drinks the water I will give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, I know you think that I'm going to come and put DD7 in this water, stir it, and all that yuckiness is going to go away. I wish it was that way. I wish that's what God did. I wish He dropped something into you, stirred it around in your spirit, and you were suddenly clean. That's not how it happens. What does happen is He begins to pour Himself into you. And as you receive more of Him, it pushes out the nasty stuff that's in you. This is why the Bible says, be being filled with God's Spirit. But when you stop at some point and you leave this in here, it will defile the rest of you. Instead, what you have to do is continually be tuned in to God, setting your heart on what God desires, and He will fill you with the goodness that is in Him, and it will drive out the nastiness that is naturally in us. Y'all like that word closing, huh? 
I really do keep looking at that clock going, it's only 11 o'clock. i got a whole other hour. I won't, I promise. Revelation 21, verse 6. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and I am the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. If you admit to God you need a new heart, you need help, He'll give it to you without cost. You just need to ask. He who overcomes will inherit all this. I want you to know this. He does not say he who believes. He does not say he who says Lord, Lord. He does not say he who prays a lot, he who gives a bunch of money, he who attends church. He said he who overcomes will inherit all this. Likewise, Matthew 7.21 says, only he who does the will of my Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. It is required of us to master this process. Do you remember we started with Cain? Cain? I see sin crouching at your door. It was a thought that he didn't master and it defiled his whole life. It's required of us to master it if we want to inherit all this. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, remember cowardice is what caused most of the bad thoughts. The unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Your thoughts lead to desires. Your desires lead to enticement. And enticement will burst sin. And sin, if it's allowed to grow, brings death. We started with the first book in the Bible and we finished with the last book in the Bible. And this is largely the Bible's story. We have to master sin. I acknowledge that it's there. I know you're going to have weird, crazy thoughts. But you have to master them. And then you'll do God's will.